Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode is brought to you by Phoenix Seminary. I've had several guests on the show from Phoenix Seminary, including Steve Doobie and John Mead. We'll definitely have Steve on again later this year to talk about his new book on Christology and classical theism. But if you're looking for a seminary like Phoenix Seminary that emphasizes classical disciplines of theological training, like biblical studies, church history, systematic theology, biblical theology, should definitely check out my friends at Phoenix Seminary. They recently relaunched their online program to offer a masterclass type experience for students who can't relocate to Phoenix. And I've been to Phoenix and Phoenix is a great place. Phoenix is very hot and very dry, uh, but it's a great place to be. But if you can't be there, you can check out some of the things that they're doing with their online programs right now. You can go to ps.edu, Phoenix Seminary, ps.edu slash online to check out Brian Arnold's Church History One class. They're offering that for free right now. Brian Arnold is a great church historian, a good friend. And so I know you'll be blessed by that. So go check that out and consider joining their online program. You can go to ps.edu slash online to access all of their course lectures for Church History One and Old Testament Two for free. Thomas Joseph White is back on the episode. We're talking about the tough questions of the Trinity, big picture ideas about um, what do we do with immutability? What do we do with simplicity? How does the incarnation affect our Trinitarian theology or does it at all? And we had a really good chat about Christology back before Christmas, which I'll also link to in the show notes. That was very helpful. A lot of people liked it. So we brought him back on for some tough questions on the Trinity. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Thomas Joseph White. As always, we are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now my conversation with Thomas Joseph White. But first, no big deal. Father Thomas Joseph White is back on Church Grammar. Thanks again for joining me. Great to be here. Really privileged. So last time we did Tough Questions on Christology. It was one of the more popular uh, episodes that I've had in a while. So I thought what we'd do is now that your Trinity book is out uh, called The Trinity on the Nature and Mystery of the One God, we just run through some big Trinity questions, kind of the, the thornier questions, some of the big questions people ask. Um, and I, I do want to say that I'm privileged that that I saw on Facebook the other day that you were just hanging out with the former banjoist of Mumford and Sons. So you've really stepped down from from Mumford and Sons to this podcast. So I appreciate it. Yeah, that was really cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. I play the banjo, so that was it was a lot of fun for me. Yeah, I, hold, I saw him holding a holding a theology book, standing next to an Aquinas relic. So is he is he a believer? Or were you doing some evangelism while while you were at it? I think he's I think he's baptized. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think he's, he's from the train, he's formed in the Christian tradition. So, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, all right, let's talk through some questions. I think maybe the first one, and this is really where your book starts, is really just sort of um, how does the biblical text talk about the Trinity? You have a section on Paul's Trinitarianism, you have one on John. So, you know, one of the big questions people ask is, how do we deal with the continuity and discontinuity between the Trinitarian language of Scripture in the Trinitarian language of Nicaea and sort of the later creeds and just how that develops through church history. So uh, maybe you could just give kind of an overview and just your view on how the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity develops from scripture through the creeds in those first few hundred years. I think I, I, I would want to emphasize a fundamental continuity with regards to the subject matter. I mean, 
the New Testament's trying to talk to us about who God is. The subject matter of, of study or of reflection is the God who reveals himself to us, the Father who reveals himself in his, his only begotten Son who's been made man, uh, died, and risen again in his human nature for us, and sent the Holy Spirit upon the world. And so we encounter the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you might say, in the divine economy of God's activity in the world, uh, his radiant grace that he, he makes himself known to us. And then we study that or we reflect on it. And the Bible is not uh, written so as to enunciate all the final propositional notions that we can give regarding the, the, the mystery of the Trinity or the inner life of God or God as one. It's written to introduce us to God, and that does entail that we think about God, and that invites us to think conceptually and to formulate correct propositions about God, of which we could formulate many. Uh, they're often formulated then to exclude error and to indicate truth. Um, so let me just then hone in on what I think happens when you have development of doctrine. First of all, often you have different competing theories about the mystery of the Trinity, some of them are problematic, like either subordinationism, which claims the Son and the Spirit are less than the Father, or you have um, Sabellianism, which claims that there's no real distinction of persons in God eternally. God just appears to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or you have Arianism that teaches that, you know, the Son and the Spirit are creatures. And in trying to argue that the New Testament doesn't reveal all those things, you have to find some positive way to indicate what it does It does. Uh, uh, denote and what it does denote or indicate is that God is three distinct personal subjects or hypostases the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are really distinct eternally, and that they are all the one God. And so we have to talk about that in virtue of which they're one. And so we use the word essence or nature in virtue of the divine essence or nature. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one eternally. They are the one God, they have the one divine nature. Uh, it's not just one in kind, it's like three human beings who are all equally human. It's one in individuality, so there is just one Lord who is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yeah, you use technical terminology, and you'd say, and then another question. Um, well, what about the use of a philosophical term like usia, homoousius, or in Latin, substantia, consubstantiality? How can you use this language if, it's, if you want to be reverent to what the scriptures uh, reveal? Well, you know, we are going to use terms and languages that isn't explicitly in scripture, but we have to use it reverently to denote what's implicit or manifest in scripture and to make it more uh, clear for ourselves. And then you say, well, does that mean we're improving on the apostles' knowledge? And I would say to that, well, there are different ways to think about it, but it's a not really, but let's make a distinction. Um, the apostles have a higher prophetic understanding inspired by the Holy Spirit from the time of Pentecost onward of the, the depth of the mystery of God, but they articulated in an intuitive way in the language and you might say the moving culture of their time, their letter writers, their preachers, their speakers inspired by the Holy Spirit to know, to, to articulate what they otherwise know in a higher way through their um, unity of life with Christ and, and through their uh, inspiration after the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which fills them with a higher Christian wisdom. We can make more precise, you know, it might say philosophical or doctrinal statements, but they're downstream from and in a certain sense dependent on and referent back to that plenitude of apostolic revelation. And it's not to say that Paul thought overtly, oh, you know, the, fa the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are homoousius, one in substance and being. But it, as Cardinal Newman says, 
you know, if he had been at the debates, he would have had to take his time to study them 400 years later or 300 years later. But if he'd been there to study them, he would have been able to say finally, you know, this is the orthodox truth that the, the church is safeguarding uh, that was given to us uh, by the, in the event of Jesus Christ's revelation. So we have more precise conceptual formations, but they're just, they're only conceptual formulations. They're not the same thing as the high living contact with the mystery in contemplation and love and personal intimacy that's given to the, the apostles and in a certain way to the saints. But it can serve, it can be at the service of the pursuit of that higher intimacy. When we think about even maybe that inter intermediary period, as you were talking about, you know, if, if Paul could have sat at the Council of Nicaea, what might he have, would he have been able to affirm? Uh, you talk a little bit about Irenaeus and Origen and some of these sort of figures that are, you know, right in between the end of the, the canon, basically, and Nicaea. Uh, Origen, obviously, is, is a mixed bag that, you know, both sides of the debate seem to utilize him in different ways and are downstream in different ways. So, you know, somebody like Origen or maybe like Irenaeus, who would you say in that sort of early stream there, would you say if they were sitting at Nicaea? you know, hypothetically, uh, that they would have been able to affirm? How would you think through some of that kind of well, stuff? Well, I think Irenaeus is really just already has the, a doctrine that is very similar yeah. to the mature Orthodox doctrine. So that's already in what 170 AD, and he's really the first theologian. So as soon as we have theology in the, in the more articulate, uh, systematic form that it's expressed, pastoral, but also systematic form that he, he gives uh, voice to, you really already have Trinitarian thought. Uh, they don't use the, the term homoousius, but, but that's sort of secondary. He doesn't think about the intimate, or um, sorry, I should say imminent life of the Trinity in its eternity prior to the economy in the overt way that Athanasius does. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, there's a pretty strict, strong line of continuity. Now, actually in Latin West, Tertullian is really pretty close to the Nicene formulations, and even has the right kind of language about three persons that are one in substance. Yeah, he uses uh, substantia the, already, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Tertullian has really kind of already given the Latin West a good linguistic formulation, both for the Trinity and the Incarnation as one person, two natures mm -hmm. uh, in Christ. So I, th I think there's good intermediary testimony of a continuity of thought. Yeah. So um, as we're thinking about the relationship between um, ontology and economy, theology and economy, as you're, as you're bringing up there, you know, obviously a little bit earlier there, it's much more economy focused. If we're, if we can maybe be anachronistic yeah. a little bit, yeah, but then true. obviously, like you said, there's a, there's a deeper thinking on ontology and the inner life of God later, a little bit later. So, um, you know, you've got Rahner's famous rule about how much, you know, how much continuity there is between those two things and how much we can know. So maybe just talk through a little bit. Um, what does the economy reveal that we can say is concretely revealed? And then what do we need to be very careful of not sort of taking from the economy and saying too much about the imminent life of God? Well, okay. So this book is actually pretty original. If there's something original about this book, it's that there's a very aggressive, although I would say careful, argument about how to talk about the imminent trinity and the revelation of the imminent trinity in the economy through the divine missions of the Son and the Spirit, the sending of the Son and the Spirit into the world. And there's a fairly um, direct taking of issue with the whole Ranarian approach, which I basically, I want to analyze in the book, and I hope I analyze fairly, which I basically want to uh, invite people to take a leave of absence from. So the whole idea of the imminent trinity and the economic trinity, that the imminent trinity is the economic trinity and the inverse, which is the famous 
Gerund axiom of Rahner, I basically say is a mistaken formulation. And we shouldn't even talk about an economic trinity. It's a ontological fiction. There never is, nor was, nor can be, nor will be an economic trinity. And so it's a complete error to speak of it. I mean, I, I take this kind of strong stance. And there have been other people who are influencing me who kind of been going this direction, like Gilles Emery, uh, the, the Swiss Dominican, and um, Bruce Marshall in the United States. And I'm, I'm sort of building on, on some of what they talk about, but developing my own kind of approach to it. Um, look at, I mean, we do know who God is imminently. If we don't say that, uh, we're Sibelian. We do have to say God has really revealed himself. We know God. He's not just putting on masks or pretending to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or that's just our in the modern way of saying it, that's just our religious tradition for the unknown God who is mystery, but other religious traditions or other religions approach this unknown mystery under different names. Um, no, we really know in Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that's really who God is imminently in his eternal life. How do we know that God? Ah, do we know it because God has taken on in a, um, economic forms of being that are, you might say, initially alien to God's life, and then God has, in some sense, imminently changed or um, enriched himself or actuated what he is or evolved in his being because he's become human, because he suffered because of the resurrection or because of the Holy Spirit's, you might say, ongoing experience and actualization of engagement with us in the church's life. So I want to say, no, the Trinity we experience in history, and we really do experience the imminent life of God in history is who God is eternally, and it's really the eternal God who is, you might say, immutably perfect and, and alive in a plenitude of life that's uh, indiminishable, who really engages with us in history. It's not, it, it, the economy is not the occasion for God to develop in God's own inner life or to evolve in his Trinitarian identity in a way we, we, we could think of as a kind of actuation of what's there potentially prior. Um, so the best way to talk about that in the classic tradition is the Augustinian distinction of processions and missions, which Aquinas takes up, which is to say there are eternal processions in God, the eternal uh, generation of the Son from the Father as his begotten word, and the eternal spiration of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son as their spirated love, their shared mutual love, the bond of communion between them. And this mystery is manifest to us in the sending of the Son and the Spirit into the world first invisibly and then visibly in the visible missions of the Son and Spirit in the Incarnation and Pentecost. And this, these missions, Aquinas says helpfully, in a certain sense, just are the eternal processions with the addition of a temporal effect. So in the Incarnation, what do you have there? The eternal Son of God, begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. The eternity of God, the God's eternal mystery, is really manifest in our world through the Incarnation. And in the Pentecost and the sending of the Spirit, the eternal procession of the Spirit as the mutual love and the bond of communion of the Father and the Son is truly given to us to enjoy and know in the church. So we really have the eternal mystery of the life of God among us and with us, and that's not the occasion for God to become something better or to develop in himself or, you know, suffer evil with us in his divine life and mutate or rupture or, you know, be sundered and then reconcile in a kind of dialectical way, but rather uh, it's the occasion for God to save us in our finitude, uh, in our danger of separation from God, in our suffering, and to join us to his own eternal mystery, which is, you might say, uh, uh, yeah, immutably perfect and eternal. And some people get a little uncomfortable if you 
I, mean, I think what you're saying there is is really helpful about just the Rahner's rule has become the grammar by which people are speaking. And Rahner, in some sense, was trying to work against classical traditions in his categories, right? So he's trying to do something sort of unique in some ways, it seems like. Um, and then he sort of, in some ways, seems like he's hijacked the categories a little bit. So um, he became the basic framework for all modern Trinitarian theology, although I yeah. think he really took it from Bart's Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, Volume 1, 1, and I show that in the book and show where yeah. I think he's getting it from. And I think there's evidence of that in some of Rahner's writings where he cites that work. And both of them are probably influenced a little bit by the Tübingen School in the 19th century, which is something I didn't go into in this book. Um, look at, I mean, Rahner is uncomfortable with the whole so-called treaties of the day, Deo ut uno, ut unum, uno. So the whole idea of God is one, where you study the divine attributes of divine simplicity, perfection, goodness, uh, infinity, uh, you know, eternity, and you say that that is the life of God common to all three persons. And he's also uncomfortable with the use of what can be called, using a 20th century expression, the um, the analogy for the eternal processions according to the psychological similitude or psychological analogy, a procession according to intelligence and a procession according to, to volition or love, where the Son is the eternal you know, uh, word of the father and uh, immaterial begotten word and the son, the spirit, immaterial love. So he doesn't think you can run these kinds of grand metaphysical schemes that are pre-modern after Kant and Hegel. And he, we need to translate all this into some other idiom today. And so he wants to translate it into the idiom of the subject who expresses him or herself in history. Uh, in, and so God expresses himself in, in, in and through history, through incarnation and through Pentecost. And in doing so, in this economy, is manifesting to us, to us who God is. But in a certain sense, also, God is in this history of expressing himself with us, being God or becoming who God is as Trinity. At least that's one way to read, Ronner, and I think it's a defensible read. Yeah. yeah so how do, we, how do we then, kind of on, on what you're saying, how do we protect against, if you, if you want to use that phrase, um, the, the, also the idea that there is this incomprehensibility about the divine nature and there, there is this hiddenness in some sense and transcendence about the divine nature. So how do we, how do we be careful not to go too far and lose that side of it? Because that, that seems to be important as well. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really true. So like I have been emphasizing that we really do know the eternal life of God in the economy, but the, the, the eternal life of God we know, we also know in darkness. There's a limit to what we know of the divine essence, and there's a limit to what we know of the, of the divine persons. In fact, it's, it's in the obscurity of faith, and it's through the medium of rather highly refined concepts of reflection. Now, it's in the vitality of love and hope where we really possess communion with the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, but we don't see them face to face. We believe and know them. We believe in them, believe them, and know them in reading the New Testament in the tradition of the church. And enlightened by the magisterium and aided by the doctors of the church, by reading the saints, by reading uh, also the, the, the high and, and illuminating theology of the tradition. But, you know, we don't see God yet. And in fact, knowing how little we know of God can be salutary because it can uh, keep us humble. It can make us realistic about wh where we are as creatures in relation to God. Uh, but it can also augment our expectations and desires, our desire to pray, to know God more through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, through the inner life, uh, and the aspiration to know God in heaven. You know, so mm, apophatic theology, which emphasizes not just what we do know, but the limitations of what we know, is an invitation to grow in love and in desire. So it's good for the spiritual life, and it's also good for kind of a, a realistic sense of where we are 
uh, on pilgrimage back to the Trinity, but not as yet possessing the Trinity perfectly. Yeah. So another question that comes up in God's interaction with us is you've got this idea of, and this is something students I, see, I think always are asking me and struggling with, is when you read the biblical text, you have this idea of omnipresence, that God not only is everywhere locationally, but like he fills all things, he's in all things, he's through all things. And there's, there's something about how he's everywhere all the time or something, right? And then you've got this sort of idea that he can be in the Holy of Holies or uh, you know, in the incarnation, maybe it's the most obvious example, but he can be in a location at the same time. So how do you talk through, maybe define what, how you would define omnipresence, because I think that sometimes is a problem in and of itself. And then how do we relate that to the times where he is, you know, on the mountain with Moses or wherever, where it seems like he's in a particular location, even though he's supposedly also everywhere, right? So how do you work through some of that? Yeah, well, I do it with Thomas Aquinas, and it all makes sense, because he's got a great set of distinctions. Uh, I would never have figured it out without him. But I mean, he says, <laughs> look, there's, there's three ways in which God is present, and you have to distinguish like, so God is omnipresent to all things that are in creation, insofar as he's the cause of their existence or their act of being. So whether you're talking about the fallen angels and the damned in hell, or you're talking about uh, the highest of the beatified saints, or you're talking about anything in between, uh, you know, like the physical world, the world of teeming with living things that are vegetative and animal, or human beings, God is present to all that is insofar as he's giving it being, not just once and for all the beginning, not just once and for all, all the beginning, but he's continually communicating existence to us and maintaining us in being. And so using Augustine's language, Aquinas says God is more intimate to us than we are to ourselves. Uh, he's present in all things as their author. And he even cites Dionysius and says, in a certain sense, God is all things as the cause of all things. Now, he's not at all pantheistic, but he's saying there's nowhere you can go in the order of being or nature where you won't find God already there, not quantitatively, not commensurately as a body among bodies or in a place, but as the one who gives being and existence to all that is and maintains it in being and governs it. So that's general, and that's there independently of our moral state or the state of religious enlightenment we enjoy. The second kind of presence is presence by grace to angels and to men, to rational creatures, in which God renders himself present by uh, an effect of special knowledge uh, in which we come to grasp better who God is in knowledge and love through reason and through the volitional will, so that we can, you might say, know God and hold on to God in God's own inner life and mystery. Now, if it's, it could be more external through epiphanies that even affect the senses, like on Mount Tabor, where the Trinity is manifest by a presence of grace, uh, by the cloud that represents the Holy Spirit, by the voice of the Father, by the illumination of Christ's uh, physical appearance and his robes, you know, indicating by prophecy the glory of the resurrection. But clearly, like Peter there, Peter and John and James are also experiencing some kind of internal ecstasy or transformation to see more deeply into the mystery of God, the Trinity, as they're enlightened. So that complex event of grace is, you might say, it has sensible and external aspects, and it's especially also internal and gives them perceptional and volitional uh, uh, knowledge of the presence of the Trinity. Now, that's a special effect of grace. And when we're baptized, that presence of grace is now active in us, and it can lead us into deeper intimacy and knowledge of God, the Trinity. And that uh, culminates in the beatific vision where, you know, the saints beatified after death in the life of God, in the life with God in heaven, can perceive the Holy Trinity and be enlightened in this deepest and most perfect possession of seeing God face to face in the mind, uh, in the intellect, and uh, possessing God in the will 
in God's, uh, you know, eternal and infinite Trinitarian goodness, which we participate in a limited fashion, but which we really, in some sense, have contact with or possess. So that's the second kind of presence is the life of grace in us, enjoyed by angels and men, and manifested in different stages and states along the, the way. And then the third kind of presence, which is unique to Christ, is that of the incarnation. That's God becoming human, so that in Jesus Christ, you have the second person of the Trinity personally, subsistently present in a human nature, so that when this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is walking along the shore of Galilee, it is really the eternal word. It's God himself in his human nature walking uh, along the Sea of Galilee. And when this man is truly crucified in Jerusalem, it's God who's crucified. And God is present among us as a man who's crucified. Um, and we can speak of him truly as a crucified God or the God who accepts human crucifixion as a moment within his own human life among us. That's a totally unique form of presence. And, you know, there's a terrible confusion if you, if, you, if you mix those up, because you could think, well, just because each of us are creatures, we're all kind of an implicit Christ. You know, God is present to everything in me. So, you know, if I were holier, which is the second kind of presence, I could become the third kind of presence. So a great saint, if they became greater, a greater saint could be like Christ, or Christ is just like a great saint. Well, that's Nestorian, and that's, that's erroneous thinking. I mean, Jesus is not just another saint among saints. He's God-made man. Um, and, and, you know, or you could think that, you know, we're really our God, you know, because God's present to us. So we're like an incarnation. Um, you know, there's all kinds of ways to get us co confused about this. Yeah, is it is part of just trying to figure this out? I mean, obviously, part of it is the mystery of the Trinity and the fact that we, we are so limited in our ability to understand. But I, I think about, you know, if God is in all things and through all things and the cause of all things and the author of all things and all, the, you know, the, the first, the first two that you said there. Um, it should not be strange that he could also be in a location, if you will, right? That, that he could uh, be in the Holy of Holies truly, that he could be present to you and I truly. Um, I always bring up the example to students of the, the movie Bruce Almighty, where uh, Jim Carrey becomes, uh, he becomes God for a day. And it's actually good theology because it turns out that a human can't be God for a day and that he screws everything up. But there's a part in there where he basically uh, hears all the prayers of everybody at one time and, it, and he can't make sense of all of them. It's like, God's not like that, right? He's not, he can, he no. can be, he can hear us all at the same time as though we're the only person talking to him or whatever. So how do you, you know, how do you th think, think through that a little bit of him being able to, for example, is it just a personal distinction that the son uh, can be there in the body, even though the father and spirit are not bound to location in the same place, or, you know, just some of those kind of issues. How do you, how do you work some of that well, in the I mean, personal first, distinction? Yeah, the, you, you touched on a lot of things. I mean, one thing is to say that, you know, God can be, pre God is omnipresent. Okay. But he's present through different kinds of effects. Yeah. It's like, I could be present in the same place in different ways, physically, or I could send a message or um, I could be present like in, uh, physically, but not paying attention or I could pay attention, you know, so there's, there's different ways even that we can be in a place, but God is present distinctly as either causing things to be in their nature, you know, by his effects of nature, giving them being, or he's present by communicating grace, like in the Holy of Holies, where he's not, he is present in a place, preparing them for the incarnation, but he's not incarnate in the Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. he's, he's associating the Holy of Holies with the communication of grace in the covenant to Israel and with the enjoyment of the beatifying enjoyment of his presence uh, which is consoling them and, and, and elevating them to contemplate him. And then, um, yeah, the incarnation is a presence that's unique. Now, when Aquinas treats this question, it's in like um, the third part of the Summa question two, uh, is the Trinity the cause of the incarnation? 
it depends whether you're talking about efficient causality or final causality. I mean, as an origin or source, all works of the Trinity ad extra are works of all three persons. All works of the Trinity outside of the Trinity are distinct from all effects that terminate in something distinct from the Trinity itself are works of all three persons. So when God creates and sustains the world in being, it's a work of the Trinity. When God gives us grace, it's a work of the Trinity. And when God becomes human, it's a work of the Trinity in its efficient causality or origin. The Father wills it, the Son wills it, the Holy Spirit will it, wills it. But what do they will? They will that the person of the Son distinctly uh, take on a human nature or that when the human nature uh, of Jesus is caused to be in the womb of Mary in the newly in the new uh, conceptus, the newly conceived uh, embryo that is Jesus, you have already there the second person of the Trinity, and it's his um, organic human body, and it's ensouled. It's the human being who is the second person of the Trinity. That's the terminative effect or the final cause of the incarnation. That's, the, the th that's what is produced, you might say, or what's effectuated, that God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, should be human. So the Trinity effectu effectuates. It's a, it's a work of the Trinity, but what's effectuated is that one of the Trinity should be human, should be conceived in the womb of Mary in his human nature, should develop and gestate physically as a fetus, should be born as one of us in time, should live a human life among us, and should die a human death among us. So when we uh, you know, just continue kind of down this road, I mean, another big question, obviously, um, about Trinitarian relations and Trinitarian nature is, okay, if God is simple... He's not made of parts. He's not separate genuses, whatever. Um, and yet he's three persons. You know, this is always mm -hmm. a, a big question. So let me talk through that a little bit, just the relationship between simplicity uh, and divine yeah. nature and personhood. Well, I think the first thing to say, at least on the rendering, so I guess this is the first thing to say, there's lots of theories of divine simplicity in yeah. Christianity and in right. Catholicism. And uh, not everybody sees this the same way. Um, and I go into this in the book, uh, kind of Occam's on one extreme, which is going down the road you're, you're intimating, which a lot of modern people un unconsciously are influenced by, kind of this Occamian uh, notion that if God's really simple, there can't be a distinction of persons. And then you've got another um, other side that's kind of the other side of it from Scotus or Bonaventure or Richard or St. Victor, where there's kind of real distinction, uh, formal distinctions of divine attributes in God, and you can, you can kind of justify the the proposing of different uh, persons in God based on the, the attributes, but I'm not going to go into that. The thing about Aquinas on this, which I find very helpful, is he says, look at, simplicity is not about the divine persons per se, or at least not initially. It's about the divine nature shared by the three persons. It's the nature of God that's simple. What do we mean? Well, it means non-composite. What do you mean non-composite? Does it mean it, it doesn't have chemicals in it? Well, yeah, I mean indirectly, but really what we mean is God is not a composite of form and matter. He's not a material body. He's not a composite of individual nature, meaning he's not one of a set, like there are five kangaroos or there are five human beings. Each one has a kangaroo nature or a human nature. Well, we can't talk that way about God, that there are five gods and God is one of the five gods. There's only one who has divine nature, who is God. God is unique. He's not composed of, you know, you don't have a composition of different human beings who all have the same human nature, different gods who have the same uh, divine nature. You have one God who is God, who has the divine nature. So that's simple, non-composite, but not in a way we're characteristically used to thinking about. And you can say other things like this, like God's not composed of existence and essence because he doesn't receive his existence. He is 
and that God doesn't have qualities the way we do, where you develop wisdom or goodness. God just is his goodness and wisdom. He is his existence. So whatever God is, is identical in some way with God's essence. So this is intimating his perfection. Once you've done all that work, and it is a lot of work, um, you've, you've only got an account of God's nature, not of the distinction of persons. Then you posit, based on Revelation, a real distinction of persons. There's the eternal Father who generates the eternal Son, and the Holy Spirit is spirated by the Father and the Son. You have to be able to account for that. God is simple, so he's immaterial. So you need an analogy from immateriality. So you take the psychological analogy, which is the immateriality of knowing and loving. That's the only immaterial analogy we have from experience. And we posit that you can distinguish the word based on the immaterial generation of knowledge and the, and the, and the spirit of spirated love based on the immaterial uh, analogy of love. Now we have to preserve the simplicity we talked about with the divine nature. And so we have to say whatever is in the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, insofar as each of them is the one God, is all that pertains to God in virtue of those attributes. We said that God is his wisdom, that God has existence. He doesn't receive it from another. That God is the only one who is God. Uh, that God is not a body. So then you say, okay, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the one God are not uh, a physical reality. They're not taking up pieces or parts of the Trinity. Uh, they're not uh, each of them three gods. They just are each the one God. Uh, they, they don't receive being from one another. None of them are created. They are the one creator who give being to all things, and they don't become good or wise or loving. Uh, they don't accrue properties. They just are eternally wise and good. God is love. God is wisdom, and that's present in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit equally. And so now it starts to sound like we're saying something real based on the divine simplicity, but we just have to go through the discipline in the right order. So if you start at the very beginning, say there's three persons, but wait, God's simple, so they can't be three persons. You take the wrong end of the stick. You have to start around the other side and say the divine essence, the shared life of God present in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involves no corporeality, you know, God, only God is God, etc. And then you get to a, a more rigorous account of what it means to talk about the Trinity. Um, I know we don't want to elevate the one over the three, the oneness over the threeness or something like that, but is there a sense in which it's useful to prioritize maybe theologically the unity before you talk about the personhood? Does that, does that save you from making more mistakes rather than starting with three and trying to go to one? Well, that's a famous argument. <clears throat> and of course, there's no official teaching on that as, as if theologians have to do it one way or the other. And there are different treatises in the, in the history of the church and so forth. But Aquinas starts with the unity of God uh, to talk about the one nature, uh, our essence, <clears throat> I think precisely to then be able to clarify that in virtue of which the persons are one, Yeah. so that when you distinguish them, you're not making the mistake of distinguishing them according to that which they uh, mistakenly, according to that which in fact they have in common, and that when you then distinguish them, you have to still uh, clarify or um, uh, account for that in virtue of which they are one. And so I think Aquinas usually chooses an order of study that's going to give you maximum intelligibility, searching the kind of plenitude of light you can cast on the mystery without, you know, assuming that it's, it's going to, you're still going to have obscurity. But in this order of, of pedagogy, I think he's trying to find his way into a reflection that will give us the maximum intelligibility, which is to say, starting with the homoousius, the one essence and nature of Nicaea, and it mirrors also the one God of the Old Testament, yeah. and it mirrors the one God of philosophy. So you're taking the line of intelligibility that's kind of easier for us 
And then you're working toward the summit, which is thinking about the distinction of persons in their unity, which we've already kind of identified as a, a specifying condition. Yeah, it's good. Uh, <clears throat> so when we talk about relation, uh, eternal relations of origin, we talk about processions and missions, so many things we, we've touched on all these already. Um, obviously, you have eternal re- uh, generation, you've got spirations, you've got these personal distinctions. And in some sense, you know, many would say something like, well, the son is equal, equally divine as the father is. There's no distinction in attributes and whatnot. But there's some sense in which eternally uh, the son does receive life from the father, does receive his existence from the father, something like that. So how do you talk through that where relation to the son and the spirit uh, in their relation to each other without saying something about, you know, the son having less divinity or, or you know, coming into being or whatever, just some of the kind of basic handles on that? Well, I like the phrase of the Anglican Thomist Eric Maskell. Uh, who speaks about in the eternal life of God, received equality. So the son receives all that he is and has as God from the father, but having received all that he is and has from the father, he's truly equal to the father uh, by having the same nature as him and by having the very same existence or being as him as the one God. Um, We can think of it from a human analogy in the sense that we receive human nature from our parents, but we wouldn't want to say we're less specifically human than they are we have the same human nature precisely because we've received the human nature from them now we don't have the same existence as them we aren't one in being with them and that is the you know great difference uh the father can can um communicates to the son all that he is not only in nature as god but in or essentially as god but also all that he is in his unique transcendent existence as the one god and so likewise, the Father and the Son communicate all that they are as God in their essence and their existence as God uh, to the Spirit. Now, the, the corollary of this is very important to think about, which is that this means the Father, in all he is, is paternity. Aquinas puts it that way. Paternity is not a qualifying adjective in God or property, but is actually subsistent. God is in all that he is, God the Father is in all that he is, paternity. That's to say, he's wholly relative to the Son in all that he is. He's only ever in, in all eternity for the generation of the Son, and the Father and the Son together are only ever for the spiration of the Spirit, just as the Holy Spirit receiving all that he is from the Father and the Son is only ever, you might say, holy from the Father and the Son and rejoices in being uh, from them, but also receives all that they are, so that all that are in the Father and the Son are in the Holy Spirit. I mean, you could think about it going that direction and think, well, really, it's not about the Father being uh, the danger or the risk of the father being greater it's the holy spirit who's greater because he receives everything they have and he comes last in line in the order of the processions so he's really the one who has all that is the in the father and all and the son in him well of course that's an error to think he's greater than they are but it's a it's a kind of counterbalance you know everything's from the father everything's through the son everything's in the spirit received in spirit and all three have all that pertains to being god in them from others or the other the Son from the Father, the Spirit from the Father, and the Son. And each is equally God, but in some it's always already being communicated. In others, it's always already being received. And in the Son, it's being received from the Father and with the Father communicated to the Spirit. Yeah, and I think I'm thinking of Athanasius's uh, Against the Arians. I think in 114, he has that thing about, you know, the Father has always been Father. He's not the Son of somebody else. He's not also a Son. Or the Son is not a brother. He is a Son. And that these concrete titles or identities uh, in the eternal life of God are important that we need to make sure that we uh, talk about them in fitting ways without talking about them in creaturely ways, right? Like it's okay for the son to 
receive these things from the father because a son might do that uh like you said a little bit there but also we don't want to say too much that he comes into existence or something so maybe just talk a little bit about that just the concrete titles or identities of father son and spirit and, and what that actually means or what what's important about that right so um these are considered by aquinas proper analogies meaning they're not metaphors you really are there really is eternal sonship and eternal begetting in god it's not a a metaphorical idea like saying there's sunlight in god or god is the rain you know i mean god is eternally father son and holy spirit really um but we can't speak of these relations or of gener immaterial generation or immaterial spiration um or affiliation or sonship or holy spirit uh the holy spirit's identity as love as as gift we can't talk about all we cannot talk about all that without doing a lot of work to purify the analogies and that means there's actually, you know, there's a kind of rigor. I mean, you know, sometimes say people say, well, I shouldn't have to think so hard about this. It should be intuitive. This is too abstract. Um, yeah, look, we think really hard about our professional jobs in life as engineers or lawyers or uh, business people, uh, economists. Um, the Trinity also is worth putting work into. And it's actually much more important because it's not just abstract. When you start to really work with it, you actually start to love God more uh, because you get to know God. People work hard to get to know their spouses. They work hard to get to know their children, to get to know the teachers of their children, or to get to know their college professor's thoughts. But think about the fact that God, you can get to know God. You can study God. And actually, you can come to understand and admire, contemplate, and love God more deeply. Our culture doesn't uh, foment that or you know, encourage that. And there's a kind of emotivism in our religion. And a kind of anti-intellectualism, which has got you know long-standing Pietistic origins in in Protestantism, partly in Catholicism, in the uh, devotio moderna. But uh, you know, long-term, a religious culture can't preserve itself if it, does, if it doesn't take truth seriously. And so, thinking about these these concepts rigorously is really central. Um, you know, part of the whole thing about eternal sonship is just understanding first it's immaterial, and second, there's no act potency composition. So in us, sonship is begetting, begetting and, and being begotten a human being, being begotten as a human being implies materiality. And it, it implies becoming from lesser to greater. You go from being like initially embryonically human uh, or fetally human to being perfectly human and then becoming mature in spiritual life and so forth. But in God, it's a substantial communication of immaterial life that is perfect, plenary, substantial, and actual. So Aquinas talks about the son as act, pure act from pure act. The entire immaterial plenitude of what it is to be God that's in the Father is eternally communicated in perfect actuality to the Son. Now, that's just not like anything we experience, but it's, it's a very beautiful and profound idea of this shared life of light uh, in God that is in the Nicene Creed of light from light and true God from true God. Some of this, uh, let's kind of close out here with just some of the distinctive things like for example the filioque is a very distinctive way of talking you know in a very uh, i know you affirm that that the spirit comes from the father and the son or proceeds from the father and the son um this idea that the, that the holy spirit is the love and gift and this perichoresis you know the relationship between them so maybe just talk through a little bit of the importance of affirming the filioque and then some of those entailments in terms of the spirit's relationship to the father and son and just uh, why that's all important to affirm biblically speaking theologically speaking yeah Hmm. Well, it's a huge topic. I mean, so first of all, the filioque that is in the creed, that's the Latin term, he proceeds, the Holy Spirit believed, proceeds from the Father, 
and the sun, filioque is the and the sun. Um, and that's an addition to the creed from, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth centuries in the Western church. And it, it's not in the Nicene Constantinopolitan creed of the fourth century um, that the, uh, the Greek speaking church has preserved. So it's an addition to the creed. However, it's also a conciliar definition from the Council of Florence and, and other subsequent clarifications of the Catholic faith. So it's a dogmatic teaching of the Catholic faith that the filioque is infallibly uh, indicative of truth about the Trinity. For ecumenical purposes, it's, it's not required for churches in communion with Rome to, to pronounce the filioque. And there are different ways to interpret it, some of which are very congruent with teachings of early Greek fathers like the Cappadocians who talk about the Son proceeding, the Spirit proceeding from the Father through the Son, uh, or in some sense even maybe abiding upon the Son in the reading of some Eastern theologians. Uh, the mainframe approach in the West comes from Augustine's book De Trinitate. Augustine sees in the scriptures that there's affirmations of the Son uh, made man, of Jesus Christ sending the Spirit, and thinks that the Holy Spirit is uh, in some way associated with the gift of, of charity or love. And since the Son is associated with word and intellectual procession, and there's only two immaterial processions envisageable, it makes sense to think about, because we're made in the image of God, uh, the Trinity, that the Spirit is a procession of love comes forth from knowledge. You can't love what you don't know. And there's these scriptural passages about the Son sending the Spirit, which implies a relation of origin or relatedness of the Spirit to the Son, where the Spirit comes forth from the Son. Um, you know, so there's like complicated scriptural arguments to make there, but it looks like you've got a, a basis for eternal relations in those passages in which the Spirit is from the Son. And love comes forth from knowledge. And in our life, as made in the image of God, love comes forth from knowledge. So there's a lot of congruent evidence to think that the Spirit is the love of the Father and the Son. Now, actually, the church doesn't require you to, to teach that, although it's a high, you know, mainstream position in all of Western Latin theology. But, you know, it's a way to interpret the filioque, to say that the Spirit is the mutual love of the Father and the Son. He proceeds not just from the Father through the Son, but he's the bond of love, the shared mutual love of the Father and the Son. So the Father, in knowing himself, eternally begets the Son as his begotten word in whom he expresses all that he is as God as generated light from light. And then in knowing himself and loving himself, he spirates the Holy Spirit as the love he has for the Son. As the Son, knowing himself and the Father, spirates the Holy Spirit as the love he has for the Father. And they spirate that love as from one principle. So there's like an eternal life of shared mutual love, of a communion of love that is a person, a bond of love that is a subsistent person who is love in all he is at the heart of the Trinity. And then what happens then in the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, God shares with us that gift of uncreated love, that person who is the love of the Father and the Son. God shares that with the church to be the inward animating principle of Christian life. The Holy Spirit, who is the love, the bond of communion of the Father and the Son, becomes our bond of communion in a different way, of course, through the effects of grace, by inviting us into a communion of persons in charity that is its own kind of created mirror, finite and imperfect, but nevertheless, uh, imperfect created mirror of the eternal uh, love of the Father and the Son that is the Holy Spirit. You know, we're, we're kind of brought into the, the bond of charity and communion in the church by that, sa that same principle. That's the gift of love in eternity. So that's a, an incredibly profound idea 
that's in Augustine and Aquinas, and that's at the heart of the Western Church's reflection on the mystery of the Trinity and its shared life of love and the way the Trinity shares its life with us in the communion of the church. So if you could, just your personal opinion, we're talking about how the filioque has been such a division between the West and the East. I mean, it's obviously not the reason for the schism, but it's one of the divisions. Um, do, do you feel like it is that that material of a difference? Or do you think that, there, that it's not as big of a deal as some have made it? Or it's kind of where are you at personally on that? I'm interested to hear that. If you don't mind. I don't answering. think I don't think it's a I don't think it's a major church dividing issue. I think that it's just a symptom of the, the real issue, which is the jurisdictional primacy of the Petrine Sea. Yeah. And it's because it was added unilaterally to the creed without the consultation of the East, that it's become a symbol of a, of a larger syndrome. But you could just now add Vatican I or Vatican II or Council of Trent or all these other councils that continue in the Western Church without the concord of the, without the participation really of the, of the various Eastern Seas. There, that all comes from the belief in the, the, you might say the completeness, the autonomy of perfection of the, of the church insofar as it's the church in communion with the See of Rome and the idea of jurisdictional primacy of the of the Latin patriarch of the West, et cetera, whatever. So look, I mean, the real issue is the jurisdictional issue and the issue of the conditions of communion. This is a symptom of uh, what we think we can do or an indication of what we think we can do and they think we can't do or shouldn't do. And it you can't argue about the, you can't argue it's, as a Catholic about the prudence of it. I mean, it's also true that like, it wasn't some conspiracy to put it in the creed. It, it happened they actually thought that they were safeguarding the divinity of Christ by talking about the filioque against Arianism in concord with the Eastern churches against the kind of Arian heresy, which had crept into the West. So the reason that the Spanish church and the Western churches started adding the filioque was actually in their mind, paradoxically, in some ways to draw into a rapprochement with the Eastern churches. I think we have to find a, a, a way to understand the filioque that is um, concordant with both churches, and I think the answer is already given to Maximus the Confessor. Maximus saw the issue, and he already has an answer through perichoresis and saying, look at, let's just say for the sake of argument, the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally only from the Father. But when the Father is Father from all eternity, he's Father of what? The Son. So the Son's always present as begotten of the Father wherever the Spirit spirates from the Father. And so because of God's simplicity, actually, Wherever you have the Father, you have the Son, and when the Spirit proceeds from the Father, he proceeds from the Father it, through the Son or from the Father as a principle who's one with the Son. And so there's ways that Greek theology of relations, of the distinction of persons according to relations, implies some kind of rapprochement with the filioque, and we can just explore that and then create a sufficient consensus about that doctrinal language to allow us to have a differentiated consensus about how to receive the idea of some relation between the Son and the Spirit in the eternal life of the Trinity and not make it a church-dividing issue. That's, I think, much easier to do with understanding Orthodox. Now, those who really don't want to agree with any possibility of it, they'll find reasons. But I think the bigger issue is church polity. Um, that being said, I mean, I think that the church is greatly aided down through time to be faithful to the Trinity, not just in theory, but also in the practical life of holiness through uh, many of the instigations of, of the Petrine office. And, uh, you know, we do want to avoid having overly nationalized churches that can be um, at the, uh, you know, be overly controlled by, by regimes that may not have really the interests of Christ at heart. Uh, and so I think the papacy can be a mainstay. Uh, in fact, in the service of Trinitarian love and the love of the truth, 
um, despite all of its limitations and problems. I mean, against this kind of risk of hypernationalism, which is you know something we also need to be be careful about. Yeah, I had Matthew Levering on uh, a while back, and I'd asked him about. Uh, you know, he's, he's just such an ecumenically minded and, and uh, generous person, you know, but he had said, um, you know, basically, the Reformation was not a mistake, because the Reformation was helpful in correcting some things that the Catholic Church did wrong, even though, of course, he still wouldn't, uh, wouldn't become a Protestant himself. Yeah, well, Matthew, Matthew's a very close friend of mine, he's the soul of goodness. And, uh, you know, he, he also wants to acknowledge some positive elements uh, well, negative things that were protested against and some positive elements of the Reformation churches or the ecclesial communities issued from the reform uh, from which Catholics can learn a number of things, uh, among which is devotion to Scripture and, its, and the notion of the, of the, uh, the truth of Scripture as a, a kind of guiding light for the church. Yeah. Um, and we could talk about things like that with the Eastern Orthodox as well, of course, and I think even more so in some respects. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I told you, I told you before we started recording, you know, all my Protestant friends are, are reading your book. Uh, it's guys like you and, and Levering who interact with Protestants, you know, uh, carefully and generously that help us, you know, because I, I always joke with my students, you know, my Protestant students, uh, don't be hard, too hard on the Catholics. They do the Trinity better than we do most of the time, you know, so, so we appreciate the work that you're, that you're giving to us and appreciate the generosity in return. All right. Well, uh, listen, I mean, we're brothers in Christ. We're baptized into the same mystery of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in the same incarnate uh, word. We uh, are saved and redeemed by the same mystery of the atonement of the of the death and resurrection of Christ, and uh, we serve. We seek to serve the same Holy Spirit and to be docile to the same teachings of Scripture. So, you know, uh, the New Testament. So, um, we have a lot to explore uh, together. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on again. I appreciate it. Uh, your your not only your intelligence but your kindness is is just really refreshing. And so, appreciate you doing it. Okay, well, listen, it's great to be here. It's a great honor. Thanks very much.